This is not the media. This is hell. I love I love that analog clicking at the beginning. I have no idea if our listeners can hear it or not, but I absolutely love it. I don't know why. It reminds me of the first time I ever did radio. It's really funny. Today, so you are opposed to the institutionalization of racism and gender-based biases. So you are against oppression, the ruling class, and the hierarchies that enforce all those. You're opposed to colonialism, nationalism, and the violence of law imposed by police. Well, I've got some news for you. You might be an anarchist. What happens then when the radicalization of blackness comes in contact with anarchism? What happens when blackness, that is, in the words of our guest today, always already queer, always already black feminist, and most fundamentally, always an already trans and non-normative meets anarchism, as blackness radicalizes everything, radicalizes even radicalization, Blackness will anarchize anarchy as well. We'll consider anarchy uh, and its impact on blackness and blackness's impact on anarchy in a few when we have the return of Marquise Bay, author of Anarcho-Blackness, notes toward a black anarchism. Marquise is assistant professor of African-American literature and English at Northwestern University. Marquise was on our show last year, July 20th, 2019, to discuss their book, Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. And you can find our conversation at our website, thisishell.com. Marquise's book, Them Goon Rules, was selected last year as one of our favorite books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2019. And definitely as our favorite title of any book that was featured on the show last year. Putting Profits Before People Since 1996, which turns out to be a really stupid business model. This is hell. You are listening to completely listener-supported radio, live stream, podcast, whatever this is right now. If you want to help us out with our horrible business model, go to our website, thisishell.com, and click on support where you can find all the ways in which you can support This Is Hell. There's plenty of ways to support This Is Hell. One is by subscribing to our Patreon podcast, which we stream live every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Chicago time with a new monologue from me and a classic interview that is unavailable anywhere else online. Last Friday, we played our 2004 interview with writer Norman Kelly on his book that had just been released at the time, The Head Negro in Charge Syndrome, The Dead End of Black Politics. We also went back up north to small-town America and northern Michigan to find out how an area that voted 2-1 to one in favor of Trump in 2016 is reacting to the police murder of George Floyd. And in a word, confused. They really don't know what to think. The local paper won't cover the protests, and the only content they provide on the story is an incredibly confusing poll that is a yes or no question, yet offers two, count them, two yes responses and only one no response. Yeah, that's how confused they are in small-town America about George Floyd's death and the subsequent protests. But you can only hear that in almost 250 other Patreon podcasts we've already done by subscribing at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, live stream, podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing, as always, Alex Jerry. Alex, what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? I did not check because I was trying to stay away from typing on a computer all day yesterday because I was in so much pain. So what's this week's question from hell for our listeners? This week's question from hell is, what is next week's PSYOP? What is next week's PSYOP going to be? 
what is next week's PSYOP going to be? See, we're writing it down now. Going to be... The, the listener with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Wednesday, this is hell medical face mask. You, you can see the mask right now. Even order your own when you go to thisishell.com and click on support to get to our merch page. You can leave your answer to this week's question or our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have it by the end of tomorrow's show. After Jeff Dorchin delivers his moment of truth, when we will be announcing this week's winner. Alex, how are listeners answering the question from hell so far? Uh, I don't have any responses yet because I just posted Oh, I thought just you now. posted this yesterday. Uh, no, I posted it uh, just now. Oh, I saw a whole bunch of people uh, posting comments yesterday at the site when I just looked over at the computer, so I thought that that's what it was that about. Might, that might have been a psyop. <laughs> There's probably people wishing you well for uh, your sick day yesterday. Yeah, probably. Man, oh, God. Right At this point, yesterday... My arm was completely soaked in, like, menthol-reeking spray, pain reliever spray, from the tips of my fingers to the top of my shoulder, and laying on bag after bag of ice while self-medicating. And it was not a pleasant experience. It was five hours of sheer hell until I finally got the strength up to go to the store to get this compression wrap, and all of a sudden my tennis elbow pain is nearly completely gone. I actually have feeling in my hand today. It's quite a celebration for me. Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our guest again, email us your answer, post it on Facebook, tweet it to us, whatever. Your eyewitness to grief, this is hell. Let's get caught up on a couple of things we've mentioned at the beginning of the show. Beginning with the last time we were together on Monday when I was going on about that letter, you know, that letter that everybody thought was so freaking important and now a week later everybody has forgotten Except for New York Times op-ed columnist Barry Weiss, who signed the letter on open debate, then resigned over the open debate related to the letter on open debate. Yeah, the letter on open debate, the extent of which was open for debate, is open to debate. And now there's some tweet from the author about how he kicked somebody out of his house in France for bad-mouthing Barry Weiss as one of the signers of the letter. If that's true, nothing says open debate like kicking someone from your out of your home for their difference of opinion. So I wanted to return to the letter one last time. Let's hope it's one last time. But to do so, we have to take the Wayback Machine first, way back to the 1980s and the rise of Reaganism, Thatcherism, neoliberalism. That's so... uh, Humanity pushed humanity towards the destruction we are all now witnessing from globalized pandemics exacerbated by climate change, inequality, poverty, the privatization of social services, all while militarizing police and institutionalizing the racialized violence that is the foundation of our heteronormative patriarchy that gets its power from the state of de- by demonizing the other. Yep, that's how much Reagan, Thatcherism, and neoliberalism suck and screwed us over. But back in the 80s, despite what the media and politicians from both parties want you to believe... Not everyone liked Reagan or Thatcher, and nobody voted for neoliberalism. It just happened once the liberals got in power, neoliberals got in power, and started neoliberaling all over the place. Back in the 80s, those who opposed Reagan, Thatcher, and neoliberalism thought it all sounded like a scam to rip off the poor, make their lives worse, make the rich more rich, and could even lead to fascistic tendencies, if not inspiring a rise in fascism. Yeah, people were talking about that in the 1980s. The mantra was money, money, money back in the 80s. Money was the prime mover, the motivator of everything, our driving force. If the Dow was going up, unemployment was dropping, inflation was low, and taxes were down, nothing else really mattered. Even if most 
Everyone did not benefit from the Dow. Wages were dropping more than unemployment, and lower inflation and taxes disproportionately helped the rich in their investments. Right around that time, Billy Bragg's first album came out in 1984. It was called Life's a Riot with Spy vs. Spy, and the record sleeve had printed on it, Do Not Pay More Than £2.99 for the seven-song LP, which was not indicative of the greedy me first times at all if you're not familiar billy performs as a solo singer and guitarist doing what sounds like folk songs but the lyrics had the same kind of punk class politics i'd been hearing in bands like gang of four and the jam when i heard the lyrics of a song like uh, to have and to have not i was floored it was like a punk woody guthrie traveling around and singing worker songs that were not only moving lyrically but good songs in their own right to have or have not lyrics include uh, the factories are closing and the army's full i don't know what i'm going to do but i've come to see in the land of the free there's only a future of the chosen few at 21 you're on top of the scrap heap at 16 you were top of your class all they taught you at school was how to be a good worker the system has failed has failed you don't fail yourself so yeah i've always had a soft spot for billy bragg now he also writes columns at the guardian and last week he uh, wrote in response to that letter so i wanted to share a little bit of that letter be- of his column because i think it's one of the better pieces of writing i've seen on the issue that that i've read although the barry weiss resignation letter is a must read too just to see how many times you cringe while reading. Bragg's column is headline, Cancel Culture Doesn't Stifle Debate, but it does challenge the old order with the subheader, Speech is only free when everyone has a voice. That's why young people are angry. Billy starts, Outside Broadcasting House in London, the BBC has erected a statue to one of its former employees, George Orwell. The author leans forward, hand on hip, and if to be making a telling point, carved into the wall behind him is a quote from the preface of Animal Farm. The quote is, if liberty means anything at all, it means the right to tell people what they do not want to hear. Bragg continues, but whenever I walk past this effigy of the English writer and I'm, that I most admire, it makes me cringe. Surely the author of 1984 would understand that people don't want to hear that 2 plus 2 equals 5, for Orwell's quote is not a defense of liberty. It's a demand for license and has become a foundational slogan for those who willfully misconstrue one for the other, which I find fascinating. In Billy Bragg's reading, it's as if the freedom of speech isn't being used as an expression of liberty, but a tool of authority that only the powerful are allowed to wield. The column continues over the past decade, the right to make inflammatory statements has become a hot-button issue for the reactionary right, who have constructed tropes such as political correctness and virtue signaling to enable them to police the limits of social change while portraying themselves as victims of an organized assault on liberty itself. The latest creation in their war against accountability is cancel culture, an ill-defined notion that takes in corporate moves to recognize structural racism, the toppling of statues, social media bullying, public shaming, and other diverse attempts to challenge the status quo. The signatories complained of a censoriousness that was stifling debate and called for arguments to be settled by persuasion rather than action. Many of those who attach their names to the letter are long-standing cultural arbiters who in the past would only have had to fear the disapproval of their peers. Social media has burst their bubble and they now find that anyone with a Twitter account can challenge their opinions. The letter was their demand for a safe space. Before the rise of social media, the anger of young people was restricted to pop music. Print and broadcast media kept youth corralled on the margins. We, have been, we may have been angry about Thatcherism, 
but our ability to sway mainstream public opinion was limited. In other words, the establishment's fine with all your revolutionary artists being because that's art and in neoliberalism, art is marginalized. Bragg argues the ability of middle-aged gatekeepers to control the agenda has been usurped by a new generation of activists who can spread information through their own networks, allowing them to challenge narratives promoted by the status quo. Although free speech remains the fundamental bedrock of a free society for everyone to enjoy the benefits of freedom, liberty needs to be tempered by two further dimensions, equality and accountability. Without equality, those in power will use their freedom of expression to abuse and marginalize others. Without accountability, liberty can can mutate in the most dangerous of all freedoms, impunity. We look down on authoritarian societies because their leaders act without restraint, mentioning Trump and Boris Johnson. In response to this trend, a new generation has seen or has risen that prioritizes accountability over free speech. To those whose liberal ideals are proving no defense against the rising tide of duplicitous authoritarianism, this has come as a shock. But when reason, respect, and responsibility are all under threat, accountability offers us a better foundation on which to build a cohesive society, one where everyone feels that their voice is heard. And I agree with much of what Billy says. I'm not going to sign on to it because I think open letters are stupid, but I have no problem sharing someone else's thoughts. And if the signatories of the letter had just written their own, I bet they would be far more representative of their beliefs than this generic declaration that angered many of the signatories when they found out, found out who else had signed on. Young people finally have a voice that cannot be ignored, cannot be marginalized, cannot be pushed aside as the adults in the room dismiss them as impractical, utopian, and unrealistic, limiting their dreams and their political imagination in a way that suits the adults. Fighting for equality and accountability seems far more productive than concerns over a cancel culture the letter refuses to cite by name. I, we also had a monologue in early June I want to touch on real quick, a uh, quick up update. Back then, small-town America was arming themselves to the teeth because of fears of armies of Antifa rolling into town after town with their torches and pitchforks, demanding that everyone turn in their guns, Bibles, burn their American flags, and pledge a loyalty oath to Joseph Stalin. Gun sales were skyrocketing in the wake of the police murder of George Floyd because right-wing small-town America... Look, I know there's lefty small towns like Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I've read The Independent. But in right-wing small-town America, they wanted to protect themselves against the deadly police. Who's kidding who? They were actually still more afraid of the victim than the killer and believed at any minute all of those people victimized by the police were coming for revenge and looting. Mostly looting. Hundreds armed themselves and went out to protect their towns in places like Klamath Falls, Oregon, where, as we told you last month, hundreds of the population of only 20,000 lined up on the main drag to defend against the raging hordes. Instead, a few dozen Black Lives Matter supporters showed up, stood across the street, peacefully held signs, and eventually left without any incident. Yet Fox News continue with their Alex Jones light fear-mongering, this time warning about the anarchists in the Capitol Hill-occupied protest that was recently broken up by Seattle police. Day after day, as every other media outlet seemingly ignored the chop, and it definitely deserved more coverage than only being covered by Fox News. Fox's warning of anarchists and murderers and rapists after their fear-mongering of violent Antifa members fell flat. They'd found new radicals to scare and frighten their followers into a violent 
violent reaction. So what if Antifa wasn't the roving armed horde of militants the fanatical right had made them out to be and had been accepted by the mainstream media because they have a tendency to accept any framing of an issue by the right. Now they had the violent anarchists to scare their supporters into allegiance. Problem is, Antifa and anarchists are not the ones doling out deadly violent violence regularly since the police murder of George Floyd. The real violent danger is the far right and white supremacists who have committed violent act after violent act for months without a word from the establishment corporate media. According to data collected by Ari Weil, the deputy research director at the Chicago Project on Security and Threats of the University uh, at the University of Chicago, there have been at least 68 incidences of car attacks on protesters since George Floyd was murdered on May 25th. 68. 68. If one Antifa member had rode his bike into a cop by accident, it would have made national news and had and been on Fox 24-7 with concerns for police safety in this unprecedented time of bicycle violence. But not a freaking word, and those 68 incidences were through a week ago. So there's probably been one or two since then. If the rate of white supremacist car attacks against peaceful protesters has continued at the pace at the rate they have been for a month and a half. No, it's not roving hordes of Antifa that are threatening the safety and security of you and your neighbors by imposing their will through violence. That's what the people Antifa is trying to stop. That's what they want to do. That's what fascism is, imposing will through violence, through force. That's what the Black Lives Matter protesters are protesting. The real violence, not the stuff the right is making up to scare their supporters, the real violence is being done by fascists, no matter the uniform they wear. And until everyone, including those who watch Fox News, realize they're supporting fascists, this is hell. Coming up, black life is a radical life, so what happens when it embraces anarchy? Alex will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, oh my god, I got it, wrote it down, let me see. Uh, what is next, wa- next week's PSYOP plan? Conspiracy? What is the word there, Alex? <laughs> What's the... uh, what will be next week's PSYOP? What will be next, next week's, week's PSYOP. PSYOP? All right. What will be next week's PSYOP? That's this week's question from Mel. Uh, the winner to this week's question from Mel wins a This Is Hell medical face mask, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell sanity and talk radio. So clearly and sadly, Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Blackness radicalizes radicalization and everything blackness touches. So what happens when blackness comes into contact with anarchy? Here to help us understand blackness, anarchy, and what they can and do mean for one another returning to This Is Hell. Marquise Bay, author of Anarcho-Blackness, Notes Toward a Black Anarchism. Marquise is assistant professor of African-American literature and English at Northwestern University. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Marquise. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. Marquise was on our show last year, July 20th, 2019, to discuss their book, Them Goon Rules, Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism. And you can find our conversation at our website, thisishell.com. Marquise's book, Them Goon Rules, was selected last year as one of our favorite books to be featured here on the show in 2019. And Marquise, that was definitely the best title of any book that we had last year. (laughs) So thank you very much for that. Uh, You quote Mahatma Gandhi right at the beginning in his Benares University 
speech given on February 4th, 1916, saying, I myself am an anarchist, but of another type. Now, not everybody who's listening right now knows what anarchy is, so I think this is a good starting place for people to understand what the popular definition is and what the political understanding of anarchism is. What is the kind of anarchist that Gandhi was not, because that implies there's multiple definitions. Before we even get to black anarchy, what is the difference between the anarchist Gandhi was purporting not to be and the kind of anarchist he was claiming to be? Yeah, so okay, this is going to require a bit of a long, extended answer for that's, what it is. That's why we have all the time in the world, Marquis, so please awesome, take your awesome, time. Awesome. So, uh, so this kind of circulates around the general question of what is anarchism? Um, and generally speaking, anarchism gets a bad rap, right? Um, it's, it's often equated with and used as definitional of a negatively connoted chaos. So you might hear someone say things descended into anarchy or that things were pure anarchism, which is then meant to be an undesirable, chaotic, bad state of affairs. Um, but anarchists understand anarchism uh, in fact, as a political, interpersonal, even societal mode of existing in the world with others. Um, so we mentioned Gandhi, um, also someone like Tolstoy um, identified an affiliation with anarchism, uh, not to mention the classical anarchists in the canon, which I'll get to briefly. Um, but as I understand it, anarchism gained a certain kind of prominence as an identifiable position that people held organizationally in response to theocracies of the 18th century. They were like searching and agitating for an alternative to such oppressive and disciplinary governmental and societal control in a kind of uh, in a kind of summative or definitional vein. Uh, anarchism in its fundamental sense, I think is best characterized by, um, I think your name, Nathan Jun, as, and I'm fair paraphrasing here, um, as a pervasive condemnation of and an opposition to, or I might even say uh, more precisely, a subversion of, uh, opposition to or subversion of any kind of closed or circumscribed coercive authority, which is then coupled with the affirmation of freedom and equality, a radical conception of freedom and equality. And I, Actually, I feel the need to explain this last part uh, quickly uh, because too often there's this kind of air of conceit, this haughtiness or something like that, that either anarchists or leftists more generally take on. That's kind of like, um, oh, we're fighting for freedom and equality, so we're the good people. And I'm like, we really need to be clear about these terms because the very people who uh, have pillaged and enslaved and decimated the land and peoples of this country and other countries also said they were fighting for freedom and equality. So let's get precise with our terms. So when I say anarchism is ultimately in service of, of freedom and equality or the subversion of power and authority and coercion, what I mean is actually something like what black feminist thinker Saidiya Hartman means, the kind of freedom that we might actually be afraid of, a, a radical conception of freeness that that uh, that entails the abolition of all instances of authority, hierarchy, coercion, and this is this is inclusive not only of the obviously bad things, but also of of all kinds of carceral spaces and logics like the gender binary or um, property that is used to exploit people and land or various modes of taxonomizing ourselves and others, which then disallows subjective self-determination. And so I mean freedom and freeness as, as say someone like Jennifer Nash describes black feminism, a project of anti-captivity, a kind of mode of existence entirely predicated on non-coercion. 
Um, but if I can get back to really quickly um, the sort of classical conception of anarchism um, before I even get into the nuanced alteration that black anarchism makes to it, the clearest way to put it is that anarchism, uh, with all its various strains, typically consists of a disdain for authority, a desire to dismantle the state, and an emphasis on direct participation. So in terms of authority, the popular anarchist phrase that sums this up quite nicely is no gods, no masters, uh, which is not about um, an, an individualized religious belief, but rather a contempt for subordination and dominance. It's not a contempt for certain kinds of rules, like we'd still have, say, traffic signals and stuff like that. Um, but it's a contempt for the enforcement of punitive disciplinary regulation that in fact disallowed the proliferation of life and life chances. Uh, so that's authority. And then in terms of the state, one way to understand it is in the sense that it's a centralized top-down organization that that, uh, that maintains a monopoly on the legitimate and legitimized use of violence and then grants itself as the sole power of legislating law and, and violence that everyone must obey, or rather everyone that are not themselves direct agents of the, of the state. Um, and it also guarantees the persistence of existing social relationships, social relationships which in so many ways are oppressive and condemnatory of various modes of living that are not sanctioned by the state. Um, or another way of understanding the state, and this is the, the way I tend to understand the state um, in, in addition to the former way, um, is that um, it's a relation, a way of, uh, of interacting with someone, uh, with others and oneself. Um, and, and what I mean by this is just that that how we exist in relation to others might in fact be doing the work of the state, might be doing the work of coercion and authoritative regulation and hierarchizing. So for example, those who police others' genders and enact cis-normative and transphobic views are agents of the state and relate to others on gendered state grounds, one might say, or, or um, uh, those who inform the police of purportedly, and I say purportedly, advisedly here, purportedly criminal activity are agents of the state, or as the uh, the the people I grew up around in Philly are very fond of saying that snitches get stitches, and that is a way of staunchly refusing to let state relations enter into one space. Um, and then the third uh, in this kind of trifecta of anarchism, uh, in terms of direct participation, it's simply that those to whom a particular ethic or rule applies ought to have direct input in the creation or implementation of that ethic or rule. Um, it's, a, it's a refusal of represent, representative forms of government precisely because representatives, in fact, deprive participation from people and instantiate it in someone else. So direct participation is then a confirmation of one's ability to have a say in the things and people with whom that they are in, in community. So if I can sum up this super long rant, um, anarchism is not just, a, not just a critique of oppressive society, though it very much is that, is combined with an idea of a world of freedom. So anarchists have a, a specific methodology of social change in which the end to be fought for is already visible in the, the means we use. So um, the, there's that popular conception of anarchism as kind of this radical disorder um, and disorganization. Um, and the anarchists of another type that Gandhi might have been speaking to or, or that I read Gandhi as speaking to is this different way of conceptualizing anarchism via a certain kind of productive or generative unruliness wherein the rules that or the, the systems and regimes that govern us 
are in fact oppressive and violent. So unruliness is in fact a kind of salvific way of inhabiting the world. Yeah. That is probably the best answer to any question that we've had so far <laughs> on the show this year. Thank you so much, Marquis. Uh, so one of the things I was thinking about when in your response, how much do we recognize the state's participation in our lives in in our relations? Is Is that a step toward understanding political anarchy when you start considering uh, the way that the state changes the way that we relate with everything. Do we recognize how much the state is involved in our lives? I don't think we do. And even me, I don't think I I realize it to a full extent. Because if you think about, so for example, if you think about just the ways that we relate to others, or if we're, say we're in a relationship with someone, uh, or even just a friendship, and we use the phrase like, um, I'm investing my time into this friendship or something like that. That is capitalist neoliberal language that we're using. We're thinking of our relationship with someone as a kind of transactional exchange that we then need a return on our investment for, uh, which is incredibly disgusting to me if I can if I can say that because that that means that we understand people in economic and economized terms rather than as kind of sentient people with various kinds of desires and and trying to think about our relationship with them on ground that are not transactional and extractive at base um, but maybe try to see them as more loving as more um, accountable as more transformational and all that so I, I really don't think with the ease with which we we use that kind of language investing time in relationship the ease with which we use that language seems to me to indicate that uh, we still have not considered the extent to which um, our relationship with people and that language has seeped into it which is I think just a testament to how pervasive, uh, capitalism and the state has has been for like even our intimate moments. So that's why it's not simply um, it's not simply just a, an institution on high doling out sentences, but rather it's a it's very much an, an intimate kind of thing that we've kind of absorbed and which is by design by the state, by design by by capitalism. And that is, I think, something we very much need to radically undo and reconsider and reconfigure. And I, I started thinking about how do we just need to, you know, each individually start putting on our anti-statist glasses. And each of the chapters in your book are prefixed un, and you describe your writings, commitment to anarchism, uh, stretches to subjective, intersubjective, discursive, systemic, and historical <laughs> realms via a fundamental commitment to being and becoming unraced, ungendered, unclassed, unruled, and unbound. The chapters include unblack, ungovernable, unpro- unpropertied, uncouth, unhinged, and uncontrolled. Are these all states we have to attain individually within our own worldview, uh, the way we see it and understand the world differently? Or are these horizons for us to all aim for collectively or both? Because I'm trying to figure out if we just need to put our black anarchism glasses on to better understand our world in order to move forward toward that collective horizon. Do we just need to change our individual worldview to attain that collective goal? Um, so I, I always hate, I really do uh, hate when people answer questions like this as it's both. Uh, that seems to me like a cop out. And I don't want to say that, but I kind of do want to say that. So I'm going to say it without saying it. Um, and so it's, it's, <laughs> That's it's, beautiful. It's, That's beautiful. it's very much, it's very much both. But what I mean by that um, is that, so yes, absolutely. It's a way that we need to ourselves 
individually, though, I'm, I'm, I'm very, very iffy on that term uh, and on the notion of individuation, uh, but we can get into that later. But um, so it's very much something that we ourselves need to kind of undo um, for ourselves because um, that that kind of micro political movement will, I think, have inroads in, in macro political ways. Um, so the things that we do for ourselves and how we reconfigure ourselves and our relation to things will, I think, inevitably have effects for larger um, systems and things like that. Um, but for me, I love the term you use, horizon. It's, it is very much a kind of horizon of interrogation, of questioning, of reconfiguration and recalibrating um, because because it's because I'm understanding like just how we live in the world and how we understand ourselves as always and already subject to the the language at our disposal. And that language is incredibly paltry to, to me. So that's simply to say that like how we what we understand as possible for ourselves has already been touched and tainted by um, capitalism and the state. So we have to also throw into question our presumed ability to think of alternative possibilities because those possibilities are themselves ensnared in into the the horizon of possibility that capitalism and the state have already, um, prior to them even showing up, have already fixed into place, um, which then serves capitalism's and the state's aims. So the prefixal un that is part of each chapter is a way to really, really try to think about like, how do we need to radically overthrow the very things that we know to be real, to exist? It's, in fact, I mean, there's the, and I can speak to this too, um, there's the the accusation that anarchism or something like abolition is unrealistic. And actually, that's quite true, uh, because realism and realisticness are themselves kind of the, the parameters and scope of those things are predicated on the limits circumscribed by capitalism and the state. So we actually really need to undo the very notion of ourselves, the very notion of what is real, what is possible and all that, which is almost an impossible task. It really, really is. I don't presume that this is easy, um, but it is, I think, what's necessary if we are to get toward this kind of anarchic world, because if, if anarchism is this radical radical overthrowing of the very state that has um, dictated what is possible for us, then it requires that we think about some seemingly impossible things. Um, and that's going to be very, very difficult um, because it has to occur at the level of the, the individual, the level of the subjective, the level of the psyche, even the level of the ideological and imaginary. So all of those things have to be subject to a, an extreme interrogation because uh, in, in many ways we can't trust it. But it seems to me that anarchism is that that irreverence toward what is quote unquote real or possible because that is I think what is what is at stake. We have to perhaps become unreal and impossible if we are to actualize what might be called an anarchist world. And you write how blackness radicalizes everything that it comes in contact with. You write, anarcho-blackness is a black queer feminist anarchism that disorders the various mechanisms that hierarchize, circumscribe, and do violence to the moments that do life on the outskirts of order. Those moments of, as if it were, unfettered and ungoverned sociality. And anti-colonial sensibility. Anarcho-blackness and black anarchism more broadly is an anarchism of another type to purloin Gandhi. It is another type that recognizes its intimacy with anarchism as conventionally understood, but it revises anarchism, anarchizes 
anarchism, remixes and samples anarchism to produce something distinct but very much indebted. So two questions. First, is anarcho-blackness beyond anti-colonialism? And if so, how? In in some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. Um, so I, I'm, I'm always less interested in positing certain forms of, of thinking or certain kinds of politics over and against others that might be in in service of the same insurgent, insurgent and um, insurrectionary politics. Um, so in, in many ways, it is a kind of anti-colonial, decolonial endeavor. Uh, but it's also, I don't want to deprive it of its specificity. It has a certain, a certain history that I think is specific to what might be understood as black anarchism or what might be understood as um, uh, anarchists or anarchism that, that black people have done historically. Um, so I want to give it that specificity, but also note that it is always in conversation with the insurrectionary politics of decolonialism, anti-colonialism, anti-colonialism, and other kinds of radical projects. I'm less interested in positing this one thing as the thing and more interested in a, a coalitional struggle. Like, how can we be in struggle and not community, I don't want to say community, in coalition with with other kinds of struggle, because I don't I don't know if if the overturning of the world and the undermining and subversion of the regimes in our midst um, is possible via one certain kind of politic. Um, and so I think I think we need a, a very expansive, uh, eclectic kind of struggle that is inclusive of, say, decolonialism, anti-colonialism, uh, and other kinds of insurgent politics. Um, so. For me, then, black anarchism and anarcho-blackness, and I can speak more specific to the history of of, um, anarcho-blackness and black anarchism, but to me, these are less about claiming a certain or carving out a certain wing of anarchism and more about uh, terms or ways of referencing or indexing a certain kind of relation to power, to use the language of uh, black queer feminist Kathy Cohen. Um, it's, a, it's a name for or a, a reference to a certain kind of relation to, to power that is in subversion and opposition to it rather than an identitarian kind of politic. So what do you mean by anarchizing anarchism? Does blackness give white anarchism, if you will, the radicalism it needs? It, it does. Does uh, white politics need the radicalization of blackness is that's what is missing from say what we see is establishment liberalism within the democratic party yeah I, so i would say the very very short answer is yes but i have a i have another long rambling answer so oh please you'll, long um, and ramble my friend if you'll indulge me so um yeah, so the, if, if the book is on black anarchism, one, one must ask then what is what is black anarchism? Um, so black anarchism, I want to be very clear, um, is not just about, as I already alluded to, not just about black people who are anarchists. Uh, while I do think it's quite important to know that people like Lucy Parsons, um, Lorenzo Irvin, the, the Black Rose Anarchist Federation, uh, Zoe Zamuzzi, and um, William C. Anderson, these people exist and are demonstrably and avowedly Black and anarchists. Simply naming them as, as anarchists who are Black is a very, to be honest, basic move to me, one I'm quite uninterested in, not necessarily because it's unworthy, um, but um, because it's been done before. And, and 
kind of sort of has been most of what's been done, not all, but most of what's been done. Uh, that and the kind of the kind of finger pointing that classical anarchists like Max Stirner and Kropotkin, Bakunin, Emma Goldman uh, forget about black people and race. Like, OK, cool. I'm not surprised by this. Like, why are you surprised? Um, so so that's not what I'm doing. Uh, and I say that. But really quickly, I do want to say just a teeny bit about that very move in that vein, uh, because it is nevertheless a part of Black anarchism, uh, the likes of the Black Rose Anarchist Federation, or or also someone like Ashanti Austin, or others who have made uh, made it a point to to make that uh, that distinction. Um, so, um, for example, um, someone like Bakunin has said that if there is a state, there must be domination of one class by another, and necessarily from this slavery. So the the state and slavery go hand in hand. He says, overlooked here is how the history of the enslavement of people of color and specifically black people or people of African descent in the Western world is the kind of haunting specter of this claim. Uh, the, the, the condition of the slave, which is one plane, uh, um, which is on one plane, the condition of blackness uh, is the is a relationship between a people to the state. So anarchism and its anti-statism must reckon with how blackness might might uh, quintessentialize the the condition of being subject to enslavement. So to 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 abolish slavery necessitates the liberation of blackness, making anarchism an emancipatory project that has as its foundation a grappling with blackness, which is then to say black anarchism. Um, but this is but again this is this is not the the entirety of black anarchism, at least to me, um, and it's not the kind of argumentative move that I'm interested in making. I care actually little about pointing out the racism or white solipsism of classical anarchists. Um, my, my interest is in how black anarchism ushers in a fundamental qualitative shift that essentially anarchi anarchizes anarchism. And I do that through the engagement with black feminism and queer and trans feminisms. Um, so black feminism as a part of black anarchism is a necessary engagement with anarcho-feminism. So historically, uh, those who are called anarcho-feminists have insisted on the gender nature of capitalism and power. They saw that while even, even male anarchists would concede that patriarchy is linked to class, there also needed to be a fundamental understanding that experiences under capitalism are differentiated and inflected by gender. Um, traditionally, anarchism relegated revolutionary anarchic work to the, the public sphere as if the waged workplace, the public waged workplace was the only place where work and labor was being done and from which people had to be liberated. So anarcho-feminists have insisted that the family and domestic sphere are also sites of valid anarchist conflict. But of course, there's an elision here, the implicit assumption that all women, uh, Occupied the unwaged domestic workplace fails to consider how black women in particular had an a kind of estranged relationship to this simplistic differentiation between, between workplace and home life because black women often worked in other people's homes, usually for white women. So the task of, of anarcho feminism is not some some misguided female empowerment type feminism, uh, which would merely wish to replace men at the top one percent with with in particular cisgender women, but anarcho-feminism doesn't mean that that 
that female corporate uh, power um, or it doesn't mean uh, a woman president. It actually means no corp no corporate power and no presidents. And this is a syntactic formulation that anarchists and anarcho-feminists have grown really fond of using that I really like a lot. Um, so I bring this to the black feminism of people like those of the Combahee River Collective and what they write in their famous uh, black feminist statement of 1977. Uh, now, they don't call themselves anarchists, but rather socialists. Um, but I'm, I'm curious about how it seems like their socialism pushes someone like Marx and essentially via their black feminism anarchizes Marx and socialism. So if so if anarchists have held uh, pretty vociferously that until all are free, then no one is free, we can then note the express anarchism of the Combahee River Collective when they argue that if black women were free, it would mean that everyone else would have to be free since black women's freedom and freedom would necessitate the destruction of all the systems of oppression. I think that's actually a direct quote. Um, and this makes an honest manifestation of anarchist politics have to grapple with and have as foundational black feminism. Um, and as a quick nod, I should I should point out Saidiya Hartman's recent book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, which discusses beautifully what she calls the anarchy of colored girls, um, further linking black women and black feminism to anarchism. Uh, so that's the, the way that black feminism is linked to anarcho-feminism, which is linked to black anarchism. Um, and then in terms of queer and trans feminism, which is one of my other kind of areas of expertise, I, I often turn to a group like the, um, they call themselves the Horridike Black Trans Feminist Network, um, who insist on what they call dynamiting the gender binary as a political practice. So by exploding the sex and gender binary, we reject distinction between the, the naturalness of sex and the purported culturalness of, of gender. So the so black and trans feminist anarchism here does not, does not abide such claims and insists on noting the externally imposed coercive construction of sex and gender. Um, the this, this, this sex and gender binary then are authoritative, coerced, hierarchized, and positioned that in anarchist fashion, uh, ought to be decimated. Um, like how, we, how we're gendered is a product of how the state and its various apparatuses seek to discipline and produce and coerce and uh, really hierarchize different different desires, bodies, and comportments. Um, there's a there's a kind of political and ethical interest in the question of gender, which becomes anarchically pertinent when viewing it as not an unmediated natural phenomenon, but a historical production that serves the interests of the state. So those anarchistically uh, concerned with gender, and these people have been called um, anarchist sex radicals, um, argue that that gender as binaristically construed rests at the heart of society's structure. The, the, the gender binary is regulated by law, uh, institutions, religion, medicine, various other social um, and societal authorities. So a radical departure from the state then necessitates a radical departure from compulsory binary genders. So my conception of black anarchism necessitates that in, in light of these uh, anarchist sex radicals, uh, one also bear a queer and trans relationship to sociality because the imposition of gender might be the might be the chief executive officer of the state. So to deviate from and undermine the the state requires a deviation and undermining of gender's coercive regime. And black anarchism constitutive queerness and transness demands then that one bears a 
a kind of what I would call trans relationship to normativity and specifically normative gender, which is not merely the clothes one wears um, or how one identifies in terms of their gender or the inflection of one's voice, but a kind of a, a relative mobilization of subjective gendered effects. Um, to, to express a trans relationship to gender normativity is to sociopolitically deploy one's one's own gender, as well as gendered sociality, um, the way that the social sphere is gendered um, and dictated via gender, uh, deploy that in non-normative and subversive ways that um, that bring about a different, perhaps even ungendered world, to use the language of Hortense Spillers. Um, and in the book, I kind of corral all of this into the analytic of anarcho-blackness, which I can speak to more at length if you or other folks want me to do that. <laughs> so uh, you uh, were just mentioning the Combahee River Collective and how they mm-hmm. do they, they call themselves socialists and not anarchists. You mentioned a Q&A <laughs> session following a reading of your first book. Again, you can hear our interview with Marquise and the book Them Goon Rules, F- Fugitive Essays on Radical Black Feminism at our website, thisishell.com. You describe a student, a white woman who studies anarchism, asked about the dearth of self-identified black anarchists, even though so much of what she's read about the black radical tradition and black feminism expresses anarchic sentiments. Uh, do you think that there is whiteness in that kind of labeling? Because you mentioned how that kind of labeling can actually undermine the work that the label is trying to fulfill. So is there whiteness within that kind of labeling? Does does blackness get rid of the importance of labeling of whether you are an anarchist? Does it put a more of an importance on actions more than labels? Yeah, I think so. And I don't want to malign that that student. She's actually a wonderful, lovely person. No, um, I wasn't trying to. I hope not. Right, right, right. Um, so, yeah, I do think because if I'm understanding blackness um, in, ter- in the terms of someone like Fred Moten or J. Cameron Carter or Naomi Chandler, these black study scholars, as what they call anti and anti-categorical, um, that means then the student's question um, might be enacting a kind of white, what we might understand as whiteness, via attempting to situate it, to fix it, to categorize it within an identifiable, legible, and intelligible kind of history or trajectory. Um, and and that, that is not, at least on my understanding, uh, not the project of the way that that blackness does anarchism or anarchism does does blackness. I will say, though, that 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 question um, and like when she asked that question, I essentially just gave an elaborated I don't know um, and because I, I really hadn't thought about that and couldn't answer it. And literally, that is the reason why I wrote this book, um, because of that question right there. Like, I was so pissed at myself that I couldn't answer that question, a question I felt like I should have been able to answer. I decided literally the next day, I'm like um, the person I was dating at the time. Like I am I'm a morning person and that person was not. Um, so I'm in laying in bed. And I'm like on my phone reading articles on anarchism uh, because I like that question haunted me, literally haunted me. So I needed to I needed to develop a response to that. That wasn't simply an I don't know. And the book is my response to that question. So I'm incredibly, incredibly thankful and grateful to uh, that student and the question because it produced this book. It produced this engagement, this rigorous, fierce engagement with the very question of 
what does it mean for blackness and anarchism to interact with one another? Um, so it's it's surely um, kind of embedded in a certain notion of, of whiteness and normativity um, in terms of trying to categorize something in ways that will be legible. But nevertheless, it generated, it very much generated this book, which is very much an anti and anti-categorical gesture, um, a way to think about how can we think through the, the anarcho, as I call it, rather than the ism of anarchism. Um, and that to me is what's generative and what has been generative about the, about the question itself. Because it would just seem to me that, you know, whiteness permeates everything. It would permeate anarchism oh, just yeah. as much, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you write to follow and deviate from the beaten and unbeaten path of the history of blackness, a history that is always already queer, always already black feminist, and most fundamentally always and already trans and non-normative, is to bring an archive of radicality that breaches all major confines of sociality and subjectivity. If black lives are always radicalized, if you will, what explains black conservatism, especially that of law and order black conservatives, as those discussed in the work of James Foreman Jr.? Or is that black conservatism also radicalized in a certain way? Yeah, so I need to be very, very precise with language here. And I'm inevitably going to piss some people off, but whatever, I'm kind of used to that. But so I would say, in fact, that it is not that black, <clears throat> excuse me, not that black lives um, are themselves always and already radicalized, but blackness and perhaps even black life um, is, is that thing that is always and already radicalized. Because um, I'm understanding blackness in, as I've gotten in so much trouble with before, I'm understanding blackness not as an identitarian category. Um, it is not a thing that one possesses and is um, without any further doing, but rather it's a kind of, it's linked to a certain notion of, again, the kind of anti-captivity project or or what Fred Moten would call fugitivity, or a way of a kind of sensorium that that denotes a certain relation to inhabiting the world, a certain relation to uh, normativity and hegemony. That's how I'm understanding blackness, not as this thing that one possesses, but rather a, a different mood of of inhabiting the world. So, in terms of like black conservatives, um, that's I would actually say that. Name your black conservative, Clarence Thomas, whoever, uh, is in fact someone who's actually exhibiting a certain kind of whiteness. That person uh, is doing whiteness, is doing the state's work, is doing white supremacy's work, irrespective of their phenotypic blackness. I'm so, so uninterested in thinking simply, this is why the, the project, the Black Anarchism Project is less interested about black people who are anarchists, but rather about like the kind of spirit, the the way of, of thinking about a certain kind of irreverence toward normativity and hegemony. Um, that's how I'm understanding blackness. So the, the quote unquote <laughs> blackness of someone like Clarence Th Thomas is simply epidermal um, because he is for the most part, and other black conservatives like him, is exhibiting a an immersion in whiteness. So whiteness is a pretty a pretty indiscriminate beast to me, um, and it claims anyone who is willing to take on that kind of that kind of worldview and work and perspective. Uh, which means, on the flip side, that again, this is the controversial statement, and I'm quoting someone like Fred Moten in his um, his article Black Op that anyone, if so if, if whiteness can claim anyone, 
that also means that blackness can claim anyone. Fred Moten said that anyone whom blackness claims, which is to say everyone, can claim blackness, which means that blackness then is not about a certain skin color, which is, to me, incredibly empty as a political and politi politicized um, way, of, way of being, but rather it's a certain way to inhabit the world in non-normative and uh, subversive oppositional ways. So short answer, black conservatives, black conservatives are not black or are not doing blackness. I'll put it that way. And I'm putting my cards on the table with that. Okay, just a couple more questions for you. One is, uh, you write, anarcho-blackness expresses what might be understood as a black anarchism insofar as it designates a gratuitous disorder that engenders the possibility of living unbounded by law, which is to say unbounded by violence and circumscription. To what extent is the problem with policing that law is, as you say here, about violence? Oh, yeah. So, oh, wow. So the law, capitalism, the state is suffuse with, with violence. Like these things are actually, to me, really predicated on, on having a monopoly on violence and doling out and distributing violence. Um, I actually have a pretty, another, I promise the last long response I'll give. But the question of violence is one that very much comes up a lot, um, especially in terms of just thinking about anarchism, because one, one critique often made of anarchism is either that it itself is violent or that it has no plan for violence and crime. But, but that critique to me, though, already begins with a misstep and a gross oversight, which is that the primary progenitor of violence is the state and its various legal, institutional, sanctioned entities and traditions, namely capitalism and its numerous detriments, um, the, the military, colonial and imperial conquest, environmental extraction, exploitation, privatized property, not to mention the, the criminal punishment system. And I refuse to call something so antithetical to justice, the criminal justice system, hence criminal punishment system, as Dean Spade would call it. Um, so. So in terms of the state, in terms of the law, in terms of law enforcement, which is literally violent language, law enforcement. Um, so in terms of all of that um, and it's engendering violence um, strictly as a kind of governmental edifice, um, the state um, is, in fact, suffused with this violence, as I said. Um, it's generated out of and through the violence of bestowing poverty, because poverty is, in fact, bestowed. It's not simply a state that one finds themselves in, but it's, in fact, an imposed status and circumstance, uh, which then leads to premature death or the state-sanctioned death that abolitionists like Sadia Hartman and Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, have noted. Um, and by, by privatizing property and land, which has generated a massive houseless population um, and exploitative lending and renting and buying practices, which someone like Kiangi Yamada Taylor outlined brilliantly in her book, um, Race for Profit, and, and also by, by literally the state, by literally having prison and imprisoning people um, commits various kinds of violence. So not to mention not to mention the numerous policies that disallow the flourishment of, of life and unhindered access to medical care and simply movement through the social terrain. Uh, and this is on a massive scale that far exceeds your average broken window or broken nose. Uh, the, the violence occupies every place in, it, it seems to me, every place in party governmental politics. It's the distribution of power, and power is enforced using violence. There's no 
power to me without it being enforced. And that enforcement is a deployment of a certain kind of violence, armies, police forces, the delineation of borders, et cetera. Um, so this is the kind of violence, uh, which might be violence par excellence, that goes deeply overlooked or is obviated in critiques of anarchism being or not having a, a plan for violence. There was, a, there was actually a very telling news headline not too long ago that read something like, like a violence breaks out at a university after vigil for student killed by police. So the violence occurs after the literal murder of a person. The, the police committed no violence on this logic. It's only when the instantiation of the state are damaged or critiqued or interrogated that quote unquote violence happens. So what qualifies as violence is not the precipitating violence, the, the state sanctioned police murder, but the response to that violence. So, so if the state is the primary cause of violence and has created the very conditions that force people to act in ways the state might deem violent, it might stand to reason uh, that an anarchist elimination of the state, which is again, an institution and system, as well as a motive relating to others and ourselves, um, then, then that would radically reduce what is considered crime, in my opinion, um, making it very possible to engage in what abolitionists are deeming transformative justice or community-run, compassionate, non-punitive forms of culpability and accountability and care. Um, now, I do want to I do want to be clear and say that that the very topic of violence is incredibly thorny, um, in that there's a question of whether responding to it's a, it's a question of definition. Uh, so, is responding to state violence with something like, say, killing a police officer or something like that is justified, or is also considered violent, or is violent but of a lesser degree? And I'm not sure I myself have the intellectual capacity capacity to get into all of those nuances. So, I think I want to point folks to. I want to say three different sources. So the first is Judith Butler, uh, who has a new book that just came out a few months ago called *The Force of Nonviolence*, that makes the case, and persuasively so to me, and in, in many in many ways, uh, for for nonviolence as an organizing framework for for activism and justice, insofar as it stands the best chance to mitigate the pervasiveness of violence in the world, not simply by being peaceful, whatever that is to me, uh, but primarily by organizing ourselves around the question of thinking about how we might exist amongst each other less violently. Um, and I might also name uh, Angela Davis in this conversation too, specifically, um, of course, in, in addition to her um, prison abolitionist work, but specifically um, when she absolutely just goes off in this interview that appears on a documentary called The Black Power Mixtape. Uh, and she notes that to ask the Black Panther Party or Black people in general about whether they think violence is justified is absurd to her because they're living in the midst of bestowed and imposed violence. So in, in short, like, how dare you, Angela Davis is asking, how dare you ask the, the Black person living in the midst of terror and sanctioned murder and violation about whether the violence they inflicted is justified? What choice was there? One, they, they were bred in violence. So what choice was there to, to not enact what might be called violence? It's the, the reaction is not on the same level as the initial precipitating violence. Uh, and then the the last person I'll just simply end with um, in a kind of poetic flourish um, is non-binary poet, uh, non-binary poet named Andrea Gibson, 
whose work is absolutely incredible. Um, but they have in their collection of poetry called Pansy a line in there that simply says, I believe there is such a thing as a nonviolent fist, which I absolutely love. So I'll just end it right there. That's really great. And by the way, as, as far as uh, <clears throat> rethinking violence, we've had conversations uh, recently with William C. Anderson and with Cedric Johnson about <laughs> rethinking what crime is. So if people want yes. to continue that conversation, they can hear that at thisishell.com. We've also interviewed Zoe Samudzi and William C. Anderson on several occasions. You can find all of those interviews again at thisishell.com. One last question for you, Marquise. And as always, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate your response. Marquise Bay is author of Anarcho Blackness. Notes Toward a Black Anarchism. You can find our past interview with Marquise from last year on his on their book, Them Goon Rules, uh, at our website, thisishell.com. So our question from Al for you is kind of related to the Capitol Hill-occupied protest because Fox News was claiming that that was anarchy and anarchists and murders and rapes were happening everywhere. They didn't even have to explain what an anarchist was. All they had to say was, these people are anarchists. And then that was enough for people in the you know, the four, the quad box to start screaming, even though they, you know, the far right has a kind of an anti-government, anti-state point of view, which would seem to align kind of with anarchism in a weird way. So my question from hell for you is... If one is against institutionalized racism, institutionalized race, uh, sexism, homophobia, uh, patriarchy, whatever bias that props up capitalism and lowers wages, if you're against those forms of oppression, one is therefore against the state. So is one therefore anarchist? To what degree are people anarchists and they just don't admit it or use the label <laughs> itself? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. Um, so I think I think actually many many people are given to certain anarchist tendencies um, and don't call themselves or understand themselves as anarchists precisely because of the negative connotation surrounding it. But yeah, someone someone like my grandmother uh, has expressed certain kinds of anarchist tendencies. Um, my grandmother is someone who I always return to because she is just a wealth of awesome, interesting, funny kind of things. But um, so she watches TV all day, every day. Um, and she might be watching a movie and might be an action movie of some sort. And she always says that there's a whole big fight scene at the end and then the cops show up. And she has said time and again how useless the cops are always showing up late and when they get there messing everything up. So she is too ex uh, expressing a certain kind of anarchism in, in that vein, but she would never call herself an anarchist. Um, I, don't, I don't think she'd ever even think of herself in those in those terms, but I think there is a large extent to which some people express at least some instances, some sentiments and tendencies of anarchism. And that's precisely why I prefer the anarcho rather than the ism that someone like Carl Levy um, has, has talked about, because the ism for Carl Levy uh, is a is a thinking about the, the ways that the history of anarchism as a decided and demarcated organization uh, is. But, but for me, the anarcho 
denotes a certain kind of spirit or movement or mood or groove even uh, that displays certain kinds of tendencies that affix to what might be called anarchism. So if we can tap into that, uh, we can then maybe dis not disregard, but maybe get away from the negative connotation that might prevent people from getting more into anarchism? If we can think more about like what kind of work is being done uh, and how might that be in service of a certain kind of world, a certain kind of anarchic world, then I think that will, in fact, allow anarchism to proliferate in some really interesting and generative and beneficial ways. So that was your grandmother spray painting the anarchy A in the alley? <laughs> Exactly, exactly it, yes. Marquise, I am so happy that you have returned to the show this week. Uh, There's another fantastic conversation, and now I owe you two beers for being on the show. (laughs) Thank you so much for being back on. I know you have a couple of new books coming out. We'll be bugging you about those as well. I always really enjoy our conversations. You're quickly becoming one of my very favorite guests on the show, so thank you very much for being back on. Thank you. This was an absolute delight. I very much enjoyed this, and I'd be happy to come back as many times as you all want. Awesome, awesome. All right, take care, Marquise. All right, thank you. You too. Money is the root of all evil, and capitalism is all about money, so you do the math. This is hell. Alex, do you want to tell people what the question from hell is this week, and do you have any answers, or do you want to just get the hell out of here? Uh, Both. So uh, (laughs) this next question from hell is, what will be next week's PSYOP? What will be next week's PSYOP? Andy A says, oh, there, so I posted a picture, uh, speaking of for this topic, where someone went back to find an old Marvel movie in which they're uh, over the shoulder of some buff dude in a scene somewhere in Times Square. There is a uh, Corona bottle in an advertisement behind it, one shoulder, and then behind the other shoulder is what appears to be an image of the coronavirus. Oh, my it's from, God. It's, it's, actually, uh, from a, it's actually a pot of spaghetti with the spaghetti <laughs> sticking out, but it looks like a Corona and then virus over... Uh, both shoulders of some buff dude in a Marvel movie. And so Andy O said, oh, and there's even a mask in there. And then I went back and looked at the picture and uh, below the image of the coronavirus, there's also another billboard <laughs> of the mask from, uh, what's that musical with the mask? Phantom of the... Oh, Phantom of the Opera. Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Uh, so that was Andy O explaining there's even more going on in this uh, mysterious <laughs> psyop that I honestly should preface this. We don't believe this. Uh, uh, no W says the sinister sister act. Of course, next week, Captain America is going to declare a state of emergency due to his mismanagement of the COVID crisis, according to the schedule, which will postpone elections indefinitely winning. Wally R says tol- tollway cameras being used to track long haul truckers and force them to wear masks, wash their hands and take their guns. Nathaniel T posted a gif of someone opening door, a door and there being a disembodied sink in the middle of the hallway. Jennifer H. pointed out that this was not the coronavirus. It was a uh, uncooked spaghetti in a pot and an ad for Berea pasta. It's <laughs> probably what Berea pasta wants you to think, <laughs> exactly. Jennifer H. What will be next week's PSYOP? Pete V. says, wait for it. Your mom. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. And thank you for the How much we pay this guy in rent? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, Dan T. says, I've said it before and I will say it again. $240 worth of pudding. <laughs> Jack W says a boycott on all users of dihydrogen monoxide and then finally Spandrel O says esoteric Hollywood by Jay Dyer is full of this kind of stuff which is I believe a podcast recommendation we will have more of your answers to this week's question from Mel on tomorrow's show and again we will be announcing the winner of a this is hell medical face mask for the person who has our favorite answer on tomorrow's show, following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth, you can see the mask right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Alex, 
who is on tomorrow's show. Okay, so tomorrow, 10 a.m. Central, Greg Palace is back on the show to talk about his book, How Trump Stole 2020, The Hunt for America's Vanished Voters. And then in a moment of truth, Jeff Dorchin examines the accident site of a collision of two hashtags. <laughs> and we want to thank Greg for again thanking us for mentioning me uh, in his book in that list of about 320 names of people who he thanked. So I'm sure we'll be picking up followers from that. Tune in to tomorrow's show, streaming live 10 a.m. Chicago time at thisishell.com or listen to the podcast posted at 2 p.m. Chicago time to hear more of your answers to this week's question from Hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Alex and especially thanks to Marquise. That was really a fantastic conversation. And the first answer to the first question was just... Like I think I'm gonna have to go home and reread it, have it uh, transcribed, and read it over and over again because that was incredible. Staring into the abyss, so you don't have to. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>